is hell. I see. Manufacturing dissent since 1996. This is hell on today's show. Sociologist Abby Kinchy is co-author of Science by the People, Participation, Power, and the Politics of Environmental Knowledge, which she co-wrote with her colleague Aya H. Kimura. With the funding for science falling short and the fight against climate change becoming more and more desperate every day, it's no wonder that citizens are volunteering their time and energy to the fields of science that need to be studied in order to avoid the worst of all possible disasters. And doing so by participating in science would seem to be the right thing to do, coming at it from a stance of scientific objectivity. But science isn't any more objective than you or I are. It's always political, and citizen science can't help but be the same, no matter how hard they may try. On top of that, considering the scientist-layperson hierarchy we have, the data collected by the non-professional, and it's not always trusted, will get a guided tour of the ins and outs of the advantages and disadvantages of citizen science when we speak in a few with Abby, who is an associate professor of science and technology studies at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute and the author of the 2012 title, Seeds, Science, and Struggle, the Global Politics of Transgenic Crops. Abby is a co-organizer of STS Underground, a research network that advances social science research on the techno-scientific dimensions of mining, burial, and other forms of subterranean exploration. She is also a co-organizer of the workshop on citizen science and the food system. You can find out more about STS Underground at mines.edu slash S-T-S-U. That's M-I-N-E-S dot E-D-U slash S-T-S-U. You can find out more about Abby at abbykinchy.weebly, W-E-E-B-L-Y dot com, abbykinchy.weebly.com. And you can follow her on Twitter at Abby Kinchy. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz producing this week's show in alphabetical order. Let's go with Theron first. Theron Humiston is in the studio today. That is very odd, sir. Why are you here? Why are you playing hooky from your actual job? Hey. Hey, what's going on? Why are you playing <laughs> why are you playing hooky from your actual job? Uh, you know, COVID nineteen. Oh, I see. I see. So you brought it here? I guess. Oh, thank you, you know, sir. You guys. I really appreciate that, that you're looking out for your colleagues' well-being. Also producing today's show, Alex Jerry. Alex, how are you? Uh, big thanks to Theron for not only setting up the studio, but uh, not getting mad when I asked him to relabel the little label makers on the board. Mm-hmm. Relabel everything in all caps because it just seems more official. <laughs> Probably better for my vision, too. I'm betting. Brave enough to be live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell, and Alex has this week's hangover cure. Alex, what is this week's hangover cure? This week's hangover cure is the Pinnell Special, according to an article at MSN.com. And I haven't heard, that's a site I haven't heard from in a long time. I did not know it existed anymore, and I found out that there still is an AOL.com. According to an article at MSN.com's Eater, headlined, This fried chickpea-packed Sicilian sandwich is a comforting hangover cure. Writer Robert Sietzma describes how the Pinnell special features fritters of chickpea paste, something like a flatter and more rubbery panisse. Sietzma remembers these sandwiches could always be had at Joe's of Avenue U, a diehard Sicilian restaurant in the shadow of the F-Tracks in Gravesend dating to the 1950s. The Pinnell special reappeared recently at a new Sicilian restaurant in Bay Ridge called Amuni, although restaurant is a rather informal designation for this, or formal <laughs> designation for this informal snack shop. The sandwich is an oblong roll with three chickpea fritters, the thickness of luncheon meat. When fried, they develop a nutty taste and extra richness from the frying oil. It's topped with a fluffy mass of ricotta. The combination with the simple roll makes a pleasantly plain sandwich with a surfeit of protein. And a friend said, Stizma Oh, and a friend. And Stizma concludes, I found it. It was particularly good for hangover, starchy, and comforting. Don't know where the friend part came in. (laughs) I don't know either. Uh, That makes this week's hangover cure. The Pinnell Special. You are listening to God's favorite radio show, Prove Me Wrong. Please email me at chuck at thisishell.com. I really need to be proven wrong. This is hell. I finally watched the John Carpenter 1988 classic movie, They Live, with the acting tour de force that is Rowdy Roddy Piper this weekend, as it suggested, as it is suggested by a past guest on our show. Slavoj Žižek in his documentary Pervert's Guide to Ideology. 
in the movie, again, they live without ruining it for those who have not seen this classic that gets a surprisingly accurate 86% from Rotten Tomatoes. Our star attains the ability to literally see how we are all secretly being manipulated through advertising, through politics, through marketing, through capitalism by aliens who benefit the most from society. The 1% are aliens in They Live. They are not us, and Rowdy Roddy Piper wants the whole world to know. It's a good movie, funny, although it kind of falls apart a bit at the end. And Piper's acting chops cannot save the finale. In fact, they kind of contribute to the shortcomings of the film's denouement. Sure, the entertainment works for those who might be susceptible to conspiracy theories that easily explain a complicated system which is far more sinister than alien manipulation. But aside from a rather long and drawn-out scene where Roddy shows off his wrestling skills... They Live sends a clever, albeit ham-fisted, criticism of politics, capitalism, and media, and how the three interact to control every aspect of our lives. That's when I started wondering, exactly how did I get my prediction that Joe Biden wouldn't win a delegate, let alone win a primary, in his bid for the Democratic presidential nomination, the President of the United States? How did I get that prediction? So wrong. I was fully aware of Biden's history as a perennial loser when running for the White House. Aides said his campaigns were never organized. They lacked inspiration and motivation and coordination, and they always collapsed. His performances and debates were every time lackluster at best. Joe had a feely, touchy rap sheet that I figured wouldn't go over well with many people in this Hashtag Me Too world, with his connections to the Clintons and their welfare reform and crime omnibus bills that disproportionately had a negative impact on women and people of color, and the fact that he had turned his own home state, Delaware, into tax havens and in-country Cayman Islands for the 1%, I was certain Joe would be a loser again. Not that my predictions are ever all that great, but man, was I wrong this time around. Yes, I did think Gore was a lock to beat Bush, but I knew Kerry would lose, and I was positive in 2007 when everyone was saying it was a cinch, a clinch, a cinch, that the 2008 presidential race would be Hillary versus Rudy, as in Giuliani. Yes, every network was claiming that was going to be the contest in 2008, not Obama-McCain. I knew that neither one of those two would make it to the November 2008 ballot. With that same level of assured certainty, I said on this here show that Biden's campaign would be as much of a disaster as it had been every other time he ran for president. History was on my side, but the Democratic establishment and the media and their investor class masters that support them apparently were not on my side. Bernie Sanders was has pointed out that it was very, very strange for Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar to pull out of the nomination race that day prior to Super Tuesday. Bernie believes that what happened was the Democratic Party establishment the message sent the message to Pete and Amy that, hey, look, you ain't going to win, so step aside, give your endorsement to Joe, and make certain we don't have a Democratic Socialist steal our nomination because those stupid people voted more for him than any of our hand-picked losers. Or something like that. Bernie's not the only one who thinks that this is what happened. As soon as Pete and Amy announced they were no longer seeking the nomination, my timeline and news feed were filled with articles by analysts, pundits, and critics who were noting that the timing was odd and historically very weird and that this was likely an attempt by the party to get their person the nomination. I even saw Michael Moore on TV on, uh, I think it was the night before the primary, saying, look at how weird this is that these people are dropping out. It was also filled with news that one of Amy Klobuchar's final campaign events, at least my timeline was filled with news that one of Amy Klobuchar's final campaign events had to be stopped because police violence activists took the stage from her in an appearance where she was forced to leave, booed off the stage. Now, if that had happened to me, I might consider dropping out too, especially if polls were showing I would lose my home state handily the next day as polls had shown Bernie trouncing all the competition in Minnesota where Amy is a senator. However, someone else joined the chorus of voices saying the party seems to have had it in for Sanders, and they stacked the deck against him on Super Tuesday by getting Pete and Amy to endorse Joe at the last second. And the other person agreeing to that assessment was President Donald J. Trump. 
and in the dead-end world of depoliticized oppositional politics that stand for nothing but whatever it is in opposition to, whatever person they're in opposition to or against, all our hopes for a more just future dies, becoming nothing more than resistance without action. As CNN's Sunday afternoon anchor pointed out, and no, I didn't get her name, and no, I couldn't figure out what it was from CNN's website because all of their weekend anchors look oddly the same. The anchor showed a clip of Sanders making the claim that the party establishment had worked against him, which makes sense as he is not a member of the Democratic Party and his Democratic Socialism is not what the party represents, unfortunately. The anchor then said, you know who else thinks the party establishment had it in for Sanders? Donald Trump, making the claim that essentially... Bernie is Trump. They are one and the same. Of course, she could have said the same thing about Michael Moore. Michael Moore is Donald Trump because he made the same claim as well. The anchor then went to CNN political analyst and former Clinton administration hack David Gergen. Gergen then piles on Bernie claiming there is no party establishment within the Democratic Party. There is just a party and that party is represented by voters and their votes which is a far cry from a week earlier when the same establishment Democrats were arguing that the candidate with the most votes does not necessarily get the party's nomination. Gergen said voters don't want a revolution. The polls show it, without mentioning polls showing Bernie being the most popular politician in the U.S. today, without the anchor pointing that out, and without the anchor saying, so what explains these other poll numbers about his popularity if people don't want his policies? My prediction about Joe Biden was wrong, but I didn't take into account that they wanted him to be president, and what they want, they get. Yes, they live, and this is hell. Coming up, the perils and possibilities of citizen science. We'll also have rotten history and what's happening on the rest of this week's shows. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell Sanity and Talk Radio, so clearly and sadly, Gnomes gone insane. This is hell as I drop my notes on the floor, which was a mistake. Citizen science empowers the people to contribute in the scientific fight against climate change. But what happens when the data they collect is not trusted as they are not scientists? And what's the impact on real scientists' livelihoods when others are willing to do their work for free? We'll get We'll find out those the answers to those questions and many more right now as we speak with our guest today. Sociologist Abby Kinchy is co-author of Science by the People, Participation, Power, and the Politics of Environmental Knowledge, which she wrote with fellow sociologist Aya H. Kimura. Welcome to This Is Hell, Abby. Hi. Uh, thanks so much for having me on the show, Chuck. You can find out more about Abby at abbykinchy.weebly.com, and you can follow her on Twitter at Abby Kinchy. You write that we wrote this book when anti-science sentiment seemed to grab the center of power for environmental governance and regulation in the United States, the country where we both work. It was exciting to see people organized to defend public commitments to science and environmental protection, yet we had an uneasy reaction to slogans such as, there are no sides to science, and science is facts. In an effort to counter the Trump administration's dismissal of science, the pro-science discourse seemed to experience a full swing back to an ideal of science as separate from and uncontaminated by politics and beliefs. Why do we want to believe that science is somehow outside of politics? Why do we want to believe anything is outside of politics? when nothing can be truly outside of politics? Wow, this is a great question to start us off with. I mean, I think that there's a long history of this going back to you know, Greek philosophy. Um, but in the United States, the idea that um, we should have a sort of value-free basis for decision-making, I think can be even reflected in our constitution, right? That we've looked, we have these uh, ideas that are rooted in nature, right? Um, that our rights are given by some force outside of our political um, capacities or decision-making and, and fight over our values. So these are really long-standing ideas in Western culture, um, but they become, uh, you know, manifested in everyday practices today when we think about who gets to make decisions about some of the biggest issues affecting our lives, the research agendas that are going forward, the technologies that are developed. So I think it's very important that we put at the center of our discussions about science and technologies, the politics that underlie every decision that gets made. How did we get to this 
state? How do we have this uh, separation of the scientist lay person hierarchy? How did we get to this point where it because it, there always seems to be this sense, especially one from a conservative point of view, that science is something of the elites and that scientists view the rest of us as some sort of rabble. So how do we get to this hierarchy of separating the scientists from the lay person? Hmm. Well, it's a really good, um, I mean, I think it's a complicated history. We can look um, into our past and see that there were amateur naturalists who were actually really important to the formation of natural science. Um, And so these are people who were ladies and gentlemen who could go out and make observations of birds and uh, plants and really contributed to our core knowledge about um, about the world that we live in. But as the sciences became more professionalized, um, you know, professional societies formed, degree programs became more established, we had um, a greater boundary established between those who were professional credentialed experts and the so-called lay people who might observe nature but weren't scientists. Wouldn't depoliticize science, though, be best for us, for our reaction to especially climate change? Don't we need science to be to be depoliticized, or is that something that would actually undermine or even hurt our scientific imagination? I think it does undermine our capacity to respond to climate change when we um, when we say simply listen to the scientists. Uh, we know that climate change is an issue that encompasses profound societal transformations. We're already seeing the vast inequality that it's creating. We're already seeing climate refugees. How we deal with that is a political issue. These are things that we have to think about um, in terms of our ethics, our morals, our commitments to each other. Um, And just saying, let the scientists tell us what to do is just not fundamentally not gonna help us deal with those kinds of questions. I do wanna say that I think there are, competing ideas about what it means to challenge scientific authority. So, you know, on one hand, it can mean, um, if you look from a sort of right-wing perspective, obscuring the truth, right? Tamping down uh, scientific knowledge that actually tells us about things that are going uh, wrong that we need to address, or, you know, hindering access to information that allows people to have access to their, to reproductive health or um, to protecting themselves from environmental harms or changing environmental policy. But on the other hand, we can have this way of thinking about scientific authority that is about challenging scientific institutions to to commit to serving the needs of people who aren't usually served by science. So women, people of color, other disadvantaged groups in society that have often been uh, overlooked or actually oppressed by scientific research. So another way of thinking about challenging scientific authority is to say, you know, we want our science to be really good, but it should be serving the interests of the people rather than polluting and exploitative industries. You mentioned a gentleman by the name of, I want to get his, I want to uh, read this little bit here from uh, your book about what happened in Chile. You write that for decades in Chile, they had been uh, the world's top copper producer, making it the wealthiest country in Latin America. But with mineral wealth comes a tremendous amount of hazardous waste, including tailings, the ground up materials that remain after copper is removed. Copper tailings can contain lead, arsenic, mercury, and other materials known to threaten human health. Until recently, Chile's government paid little attention to the hundreds of millions of tons of tailings that piled up each year in the mining regions. In 2012, the Ministry of the Environment published procedures for identifying and remediating soils contaminated by mining waste, yet the agency has been slow to carry out the work. Sebastian Ureta, a sociologist in Santiago, Chile, has observed his government's efforts to address soil contamination with growing concern, now skeptical that the Ministry of the Environment has the funds or the will to protect people from copper tailings. Ureta is considering the possibility of an alternative approach, citizen science. Is citizen science the scientific community's response to the deprioritization of environmental policy in places like Chile? Does citizen science exist, and is it expanding because governments, governments often beholding to resource exploitation concerns, are defunding science globally? Yeah, that's a really big part of it. But I want to 
make clear that there are a, several uh, different impulses that are driving the rise of citizen science right now. This idea that ordinary people without professional scientific degrees um, can take part in collective research efforts about the environment. So a big part of the um, push toward these kinds of efforts is and frankly, that policymakers see citizen science as an opportunity to outsource their work, to divest from uh, investment in uh, research. Um, we see increasing cuts to our research funding agencies as well as uh, environmental regulatory agencies. And you know, during the Obama administration, there was um, some there were some public policies that were created to encourage the use of citizen science by government agencies. Um, and this was often used, you know, couched in language like harnessing the ingenuity of the public, right? So this very sort of innovation, economic growth orientation. Um, but, you know, at the same time, right, this, this, the history of citizen science or involving the public in collecting environmental data goes back to, I mean, if we look at the environmental protection agencies' investments in our encouragement of um, volunteers to monitor monitor their watersheds it goes back to funding cuts in the 1980s. So there's a longer trajectory of that there. So yeah, I think this is um, part of a broader phenomenon of neoliberalization of environmental governance, uh, the retreat of the state from a lot of important environmental funding and research. But at the same time, there is a very strong impulse toward citizen science that comes out of grassroots social movements that are, as I was mentioning before, really trying to challenge scientific institutions that have systematically neglected communities that really need more environmental research. So there's, and there's longstanding calls to democratize science, right? Because we know that science and technology have such profound impacts on our lives. Uh, getting more people involved in making the decisions about what to research and how to research it, um, I think is a really, a really important thing to consider. So it is not the, the rise of citizen science, I think, doesn't just come from one direction. It's not just about neoliberalism. It's also about democratic and grassroots social movements. So I had like 60 questions written for you. Now I have 14 follow-up questions to that one because <laughs> that was, so uh, you mentioned uh, the neoliberalization of scientific research. How much does citizen science shift the responsibility from whatever systemic responsibility there is, whatever corporate or government responsibility there is for, let's say, climate change? Does it shift that responsibility to the citizen, to the individual? Does it shift the responsibility to personal responsibility for climate change, obfuscating any responsibility that government or corporations may have had? Uh, it depends on the on the case, but yeah, I think we. I, I don't have a great example pertaining to climate change, but in the book we write about a couple of examples where exactly what you described happened. So, in um, after the Fukushima nuclear disaster in Japan, uh, there were lots of different efforts for to um, get monitoring tools, radiation monitoring tools, into the hands of ordinary people because otherwise the Japanese government just really wasn't doing enough, at least in the perception of many people living there. Um, so there was a great deal of enthusiasm for the opportunity to get these, these grassroots monitoring tools out into the public. And I think that was really important for people to recognize not only that they were able to map the scope of radiation outside of the areas that were um, the no-go areas, and that raised awareness of the uh, extremity of the issues. But we've also seen in Japan the um, a turn toward personal radiation monitoring as a way to deal with the pollution rather than large scale remediation efforts that would make place make the make communities safer to live in. So people are now being encouraged to monitor, but as a way to protect themselves individually rather than to join forces and demand uh, either or re relocation, major cleanup, or in a larger scale um, kind of social movement, rethinking the future of energy production in Japan. Um, so we do see the use of citizen science in some cases, um, pushing people toward private 
personal responses to environmental issues, which can really kind of normalize pollution in the environment, right? It's just there, you individually have to deal with it. You mentioned the democratization of science, and you write social scientists have often used the term citizen science to describe the practice of science by social movement activists or to discuss efforts to democratize scientific inquiry. For example, activists may do citizen science for the improvement of health and the environment, often in cases of environmental racism or other forms of injustice. Is democracy necessarily good or bad for science? We often hear democracy stops at the schoolroom door or the shop Mm -hmm. door. And so it would seem like democracy stops at the lab door. Should it? Is that good for science that we don't have a democratic laboratory or is that a bad thing for science? Well, I don't think it's an easy black or white, yes or no kind of question to answer. Um, I think to answer that question, you have to understand how much science and technology actually shape our everyday lives. And when we see that and to realize that in a democracy, we should all have uh, the capacity to shape the conditions that we live in. Then I think the call for democratizing science and technology is really compelling. Now, what that actually looks like in practice, I mean, does that mean we all take a vote on which chemical reagents scientists use? Probably not. I think that would probably be a really bad idea. Um, but I do think that there's, uh, we can really creatively think about ways that um, all of us who have a stake in research agendas and technological development could have a much greater say in how research funding gets allocated, what priorities get set, And there are some actually some really cool examples of how this has been done in other countries. Um, In the Netherlands, starting in the 1970s, um, most universities opened something that they called science shops. And these were organizations mostly within the universities where people could come and say, my environmental organization has an issue that we need research on, or my community is considering um, you know, we're being faced with a new development that's, that's, that someone has proposed, or they're trying to build a new highway. And we need some research to help us understand this issue and advocate uh, our position on it. And researchers at the universities would take up those suggested ideas to pick up those, those research topics and do the research in the service of the community. I think that's a great example of how science can be democratized um, and put more in the service of everyday people. So do you think citizen science is more about political empowerment or is it more about data collection? Is it more about science? <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're intertwined. But you can definitely see a spectrum of citizen science projects where some are clearly designed to help researchers at universities get more access to data that would otherwise be expensive to gather or just really difficult to gather. So you see projects, you can go onto the website um, SciStarter, which is this clearinghouse for uh, citizen science projects that you can volunteer for. And a lot of them are things you can do online, for example. So you, one project might have you looking at um, photographs that were captured of wildlife in a, in a refuge somewhere and uh, identifying the different species. And this sort of catalogs all the data. Um, so, you know, those projects like that, I think, advance a research agenda that a lot of people might actually care about preserving biodiversity, protecting endangered species. But the work that the that the participants of the volunteers do is really oriented toward just collecting more and more data, not asking novel questions or advocating for changes in their communities. But there are lots of other examples of citizen science that really do come from the grassroots. So for example, people who are living near uh, polluting facilities like um, the like oil refineries, for example, have often successfully used their own monitoring devices, um, low-tech monitoring resources, or even their own personal health experiences to get enough information together that they can make a case that something has to change. So there's a whole spectrum of different types of citizen science projects. 
You write that citizen science has also become an important public policy issue. Many governments, including the United States, EU, and Singapore, have expressed desires to encourage and capitalize on citizen science. Some science policy experts have applauded citizen science for making science more participatory, showing the possibility of a scientifically literate society and more equitable engagement between experts and the lay public. To what degree could citizen science be exploited by those whose politics are more, say, reactionary, if not fascist, leading to things like, I don't know, eugenics. How, mm-hmm. ins- how insulated is science today from supporting a politics of hate? Mm. I have to think about that one a little bit more, but I can talk about another way that um, citizen science has been put to use by um, maybe less than democratic interests. Um, I've increasingly been encountering examples of citizen science that I would characterize as primarily being public relations efforts by polluting industries. Um, But these are really really tricky and complicated to diagnose because they often do involve real scientists working at universities doing um, environmental research. So let me give you a concrete example. Um, there is, uh, there are a growing number of cruises going to Antarctica. Now we know that cruises are, you know, the cruise industry is highly polluting and Antarctica is a really fragile environment. So the increasing number of cruise ships going there could be pretty concerning. But, um, there are uh, a growing number of academic oceanographers who are using those cruises as an opportunity to collect data about Antarctica. And not only are they going on the cruises to gather the data, but they're enlisting passengers on those cruise ships as quote unquote citizen scientists to collect samples of snow, to photograph whale sightings and things like that. And the scientists are actually publishing research coming out of these trips. So, you know, it seems like this is advancing their um, their environmental research agendas. But um, at the same time, of course, those cruise ships are advertising their trips as more sustainable, that they're oriented towards citizen science and conservation, that citizen scientists who go on these trips will become ambassadors for protecting this fragile environment. So, you know, this really looks like PR to me for the industry, um, particularly in light of, you know, growing concern about the impacts of cruises. So how, what do we make of the scientists who have been enlisted in this, who, who see it really differently? You know, they say this is a good way to get the data that we need to study this environment. So um, I think that the potential for citizen science to be used in myriad ways, um, potentially in some of the really concerning ways that you identified, is, is there. Um, but it's often not going to look like this black and white, like here is the example of fascist or eugenic citizen science. It's probably going to look more, um, it's going to be a lot more subtle than that. And that's why we have to just pay really close attention to what's going on because it's, it's not going to be um, just blatant. You uh, mentioned how this data collection can lead to a lack of focus on the broader sets of concerns. How often does citizen science get bogged down in the minutiae of data collecting without considering the more basic questions that relate to their concerns? Again, the root causes of what has caused the problem that they want to address. Yeah, this is one of my main concerns about what can happen even in um, grassroots, environmental justice-oriented citizen science projects. What happens is something that um, you know, other researchers working in this area have called a data treadmill. That you, know, you collect some data and then your opponents, say the, the company that you're up against, um, challenges that data or says, oh, the, you, know, you didn't standardize something properly or um, you don't have enough data. And so you go back on the treadmill and you gather more and then you recognize some inconsistencies and then you try to gather more data and you end up spending so much time and resources um, just get, gathering measurements. While at the same time, this may distract from thinking about why are we in this situation to begin with? Um, Why is this polluting company in such a position of power that they can um, dictate the terms of the debate about the pollution that they're causing? Um, And I, I think it's really important that when we 
do these kinds of environmental research projects that we always contextualize um, in, a, in a sociological way and, and to really recognize what are the politics of this situation and why are we, why are we even approaching it in this particular manner? Um, I, I think that there's a lot of potential for citizen science to do that when people are having face-to-face -face interactions around environmental measurements and observations, because you can say, well, why did we, why did we find this? What's, what's going on here? The explanation is usually something in the social world. It's something that a company is doing, that our government is doing, and so on. Um, but if we uh, design projects where all people are doing is collecting and processing data, and not having those kinds of conversations, I think that the all of the really uh, important fundamental social context can get stripped away. Um, and so the kind of problem solving that could happen through citizen science just doesn't happen. You mentioned, um, you mentioned the areas where citizen science faces recurring challenges, which are volunteering, taking a stand, contextualizing data, and shifting scales. When it comes to volunteering, you write, volunteering is always good for society, right? Maybe not. Social scientists are starting to recognize that some forms of volunteering are corrosive to important social values, such as inclusion, equity, and social justice. How can volunteering be bad for social justice. <laughs> yeah, this is really kind of counterintuitive, but it's something we came to see. Um, so I really got started doing this uh, work and thinking about this book when I was, well, first I started just participating in a volunteer water monitoring project in Pennsylvania and, and Southern New York when the Marcellus Shale natural gas boom was just starting. And, um, I grew up in Pennsylvania and the place where my parents lived was kind of ground zero for the natural gas companies. And um, we knew so little about what the impacts would be. So when in 2009, we, um, I got an email about a group that was uh, looking for volunteers to get trained to do stream monitoring, right? To go out into their creeks and gather data um, because we we're, you know, pretty concerned that all the natural gas drilling was degrading water quality or had a potential to do so. So I, you know, I said, I, I really want to do this. And I wasn't living, you know, near my parents at the time. I was living about three hours away where I am now in Troy, New York. But I just thought it was important enough to go and get trained and learn how to do it. And so, um, you know, that's how I started doing this, uh, doing some work about, uh, uh, figuring out how people actually were participating in this kind of environmental monitoring. And um, what we started to learn is that there were um, so many other big social issues that we really needed to be attending to. Um, but there were there was so much data to collect as well, right? We knew that we had to collect baseline water quality to um, be able to prove that some change had hap would happen in the future. So there was a tremendous amount of effort to just track down, right? What is every every week, every month, what was the quality of the water? Because we could, knew it could change over time. So anyway, long story short, I think I lost the train of your original question. But um, you know what we one of the things that I discovered in doing this work is that um, you can invest a whole lot of time in these issues, but not necessarily connect it to the larger um, set of problems that we're facing at the moment. So at the time that we're doing all this data collection, you know, the, our federal government is increasingly subsidizing the natural gas industry and creating uh, regulatory loopholes. Um, and the, um, um, and the industry is, is growing rapidly. Um, and so, you know, this is what made me think initially um, about some of the ways that volunteering to monitor our environment um, in some ways was, I'm not going to say, I mean, I would, wouldn't describe that particular case as corrupt to democracy, but it made a lot of us focus on one particular dimension of natural gas development that was not necessarily the most significant one or the most, or I would say the most urgent one that we needed to address at the time, right? So we thought about our this, this issue in a 
a kind of narrow way um, rather than um, than conceptualizing the broad set of concerns that were affecting the community in really impactful ways. You know, this huge economic boom that was changing the population, but also bringing uh, about all kinds of new questions that people weren't really equipped to deal with. Um, so volunteering was a way of thinking about um, solving a problem without it actually being political engagement, right? So it was like, we're going to volunteer to gather this data so that maybe regulators can do something with it sometime, or maybe someday we together can do something with it. But right now we don't have an action plan. So that, that started to concern me. And that is what led to many of the questions of the book. But there was another thing. So later after I thought a lot about this, I actually got funding to do a bigger study of how these volunteer water monitoring projects were occurring all over the state of Pennsylvania. And one of the things that we found, so we, we created a map of all the watersheds where volunteers were going out and got, gathering water samples. And this map was turned out to be really revealing to us because one of the things we discovered is that there were big gaps, spatial gaps, where there weren't volunteers going out and collecting water. I mean, first of all, the first thing to say is it was remarkable to see just how many volunteers had mobilized all across the state. I mean, that was exciting. But it, volunteering isn't something that is just universally distributed. We don't all equally have the capacity to volunteer as individuals, but also you need an organizational support system to make volunteering possible. And there are very rural places. There are places that don't have civil society organizations. They don't have labor unions. They don't have uh, environmental, you know, environmental organizations rooted in the community. They don't have universities with people on hand to sort of support an effort like this. And so what happens is you, you see these gaps in the map about, um, you know, these are places where no volunteers are going out and monitoring their streams. And so you have to think about if we were if we were arranging a situation where we were entirely reliant on volunteers to monitor our environment, there would be places that would have no access to scientific knowledge about their resources. And that's what's one of the things that's so problematic about relying on volunteers. Now, you know, at this current moment, we have a mix in Pennsylvania. We have a mix of both regulatory agencies and volunteers, and there are academic scientists doing water research as well. But this is what I mean when it when I say that volunteering can actually be a problematic way of thinking about addressing environmental problems. Can it also lead to devaluing of not only scientists, but their work and just a devaluing of science? Does citizen science either devalue the actual labor of scientists pressing down wages or devalue what scientists contribute to society? Because, hey, anybody can do science. I think that's a really good speculation, right? I mean, I think we need to see some more research about how, you know, how this is actually playing out. But, um, you know, I've run across a couple of articles where um, scientists were expressing concern that if their field became too closely associated with citizen science, um, the field as a whole might become devalued, right? That the maybe the data isn't as good, or maybe you don't really need to fund this area because it's it can all be done by volunteers. So I think that is, a, you know, a small but maybe growing concern that we want to look at some more. Um, but yeah, I mean, certainly it devalues the work of our many, um, you know, public servants, scientists who work in our many different government agencies that deal with the environment, whether at the local level, at the county level, and our state, uh, you know, departments of environmental conservation or environmental protection and at the federal EPA. Um, you know, those those scientists are already under so much threat. I mean, many of them have lost their jobs during the Trump administration. And, um, you know, saying that this kind of work can just be done by people in their backyards uh, just really profoundly devalues that really important work that they do. Um, and, um, you know, I don't know if there's a cause, a causal relationship between valuing citizen science and devaluing uh, regulatory scientists, but these are happening at the same time. And I think it's really concerning. 
you write how uh, when those responsible for the pollution are located in distant places and are governed by non-local authorities, scaling up is essential for citizen scientists to ha- for citizen science to have a role in solving environmental problems. Participants must have a strategy for making change at the systemic level while remaining attentive to the local knowledge that otherwise would be ignored. That made me start thinking about not-in-my-backyard politics. Are NIMBY politics then also a distraction from the real systemic issues at hand when it comes to the environment? Because back in the 80s and up through the 90s, that was a Greenpeace strategy, not-in-my-backyard, believing that if everybody said it, then it would never be in anybody's backyard. What are uh, activists distracted from when they believe NIMBY can save the world? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, that's certainly an, an ongoing problem, right? Because, of course, um, just just as every community doesn't have equal capacity to do volunteer citizen science, they also don't have equal power to stand up to polluters. So, you know, when more powerful communities, you know, wealthier communities, those with more education, more ties to government and, and industry, um, are able to say not in my backyard, then it ends up in somebody else's backyard. Um, and I, I think that you know we we now recognize this, and environmental organizations recognize this, and have tried to move away from the NIMBY um, orientation and have you know use instead the idea of not in anyone's backyard. Um, but I think that you know realistically, often people start with their backyards, right? Or they start with their own bodies. This is how people get involved in a lot of environmental politics is they feel sick and or their kid feels sick. And they're trying to connect that then to what is the cause of this? So we have seen really powerful examples of how that can bring about huge systemic change. So maybe your listeners will remember um, learning about Lois Gibbs and Love Canal, um, 1978 Love Canal in Niagara Falls community um, that had been built on top of a toxic waste dump from a chemical facility in the 1940s. And people were getting sick. And um, Lois Gibbs and and other people in her community um, was a mom of a sick kid. And so she started going door to door and talking to other people to try to figure out, is this something that that's happening to everyone? And that ended up being such a powerful social movement that, you know, it led to creation of federal policy like the Superfund. Um, so there, there are amazing examples of people scaling up their personal embodied experience to the level of national or even international policy change. Um, and uh, I saw that also in some of the other research that we talk about in the, in the book. Um, one of the chapters in the book is about um, environmental monitoring of genetically engineered plants that are growing in places where they're not, where they weren't supposed to have been released. So there's a technical term for this transgene flow, but basically it means that no one had permission to plant genetically engineered crops here, um, but they're growing in the environment and they're spreading their pollen, they're spreading their seeds, and it's now becoming part of the plant population. In Mexico, indigenous farmers, small-scale peasant farmers um, learned about this issue because first an academic scientist published a study in 2000, but then mobilized a big citizen science campaign with um, including environmental uh, activists based in Mexico City, but also many, many rural communities to gather corn samples and analyze them for um, what they consider to be genetic contamination. And they ended up finding a much more widespread contamination than any um, other previous study had found. And this fed into a larger campaign against NAFTA and for indigenous people's rights. So this is another example where people were, you know, really primarily concerned about something very local, what they eat, the crops they grow in their own fields, um, but was very easily connected to, you know, big transnational issues around, particularly around trade with the United States. So I think that these um, give me some hope about how 
things can start with not in my backyard kind of ideas, but be easily connected through a process of um, really consciousness raising about the broader social context um, and environmental issues that transcend the, the immediate locality um, to become much bigger social movements. You mentioned the Obama administration's Open Government National Action Plan of 2013 that claimed that citizen science and crowdsourcing were open innovation methods that could harness the ingenuity of the public. You touched on this a little bit earlier, but that Mm -hmm. sounds a lot like Silicon Valley cliches. Is citizen science science the disruption of science like we have seen in for like ride sharing, disrupting transportation, destroying thousands of cab drivers' lives? Is this the Silicon Valley ising of science, taking it to the platform economy? Is citizen science Silicon Valley's attempt to disrupt science? Um, it sure looks like that. Um, I, you know, I have not done enough research about what was underlying the formation of these policies during the Obama administration or what kind of, um, what kind of activities are happening in tech startups and tech firms around citizen science. So I can't offer it you know, a definitive answer on this. I will say that there is, you know, my book focuses on environmental citizen science, but there is a whole other world of citizen science that deals with a whole, a huge range of other issues. So, um, you know, there, and a lot of it is being gamified. So for example, there's a game that's talked about a lot. It's called Fold It. And basically it's to model the way proteins fold within the cells. And so um, I have not played this game, but I hear that it's pretty interesting. Um, but people are basically playing a game online as a way to generate scientific understanding that research, research scientists can use. Um, there are other, uh, many other attempts to gamify uh, citizen science. and. You know, I can understand why this is intriguing to people, right? It's going to get a lot more people interested in contributing to the research um, and make, probably people are having fun doing it. If they weren't having fun, they wouldn't they wouldn't participate, I guess. But um, to me, this seems to be a, a pretty profound shift away from the idea of involving the public in asking scientific questions. Uh, figuring out what kinds of information we need to to answer those questions, interpreting the data that we collect. Right? Those kinds of things, I think, are those practices are so important to um, a functioning democracy, I think. Right. It's about getting all of us should have an idea of how to gather evidence to support an argument. And I think that engaging in citizen science can do that. But when we have these kinds of projects that are basically just creating more online games for people to play. I really don't think it is supporting that larger goal. We have been speaking with sociologist Abby Kinchy. She is co-author of Science by the People, Participation, Power, and the Politics of Environmental Knowledge, which she co-wrote with fellow sociologist Aya H. Kimura. One last question for you, Abby, and as we do with each and every one of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. One of those three things. <laughs> you uh, argue how citizen science attempts to depoliticize science. We've been talking a lot lately about depoliticization. What do you think is the attraction in not being political while becoming involved in citizen science, which on its very face appears to be very political? What do you think is the attraction in being apolitical or depolitical? Yeah. Um, I think there are multiple attractions. So from the perspective of people who might choose to participate in a citizen science project that that is depoliticizing an issue or that might actually be something desirable for them because they live in a context where speaking up has big um, social consequences. So, you know, I talked to a while about the volunteer water monitoring experience that I was in, you know, in, in a lot of parts of rural Pennsylvania, people who have a, um, who are opposed to the natural gas industry or have concerns about the natural gas industry, um, feel that they can't speak up. It's a, you know, because of the, the community is increasingly dependent on that industry. And it's also an overwhelmingly conservative 
region of the country. So there's a sense that people who have these concerns um, can do something about it, can act on those concerns without facing the social consequences of, of saying an oppositional view outright. So that's, that's one way that people get attracted to a more depoliticized citizen science. And I think it's important to recognize that. But from the perspective of people organizing citizen science projects, I mean, you know, another reason might be to say, well, we recognize that our um, regulatory agencies insist that they only make decisions based on science. So it's not actually doing us any good to go to those decision makers with our you know, embodied experiences and our concerns about the power of the industry and so forth, because that's not the basis they're going to make decisions on. And I think that's also an accurate reading of the situation. Um, you know, we've got a regulatory system that just doesn't, <laughs> doesn't care about things besides cost-benefit analysis and, and a very narrow kind of risk analysis. So, you know, that's, that's influencing the situation as well. And then from the perspective of scientists who maybe are working at universities, there are a lot of social sanctions as well for being perceived as an activist, right? For uh, decades, if not centuries, scientists have been expected to um, maintain a position of neutrality about the um, potential you know, implications of their work. And so, you know, you're, and when you're continuously attacked by polluting industries, if you do stick your neck out and say, hey, I'm concerned about this, um, you know, when you're continuously told that, oh, well, if you have an opinion, then your science is no good and you don't have credibility, then that's another reason why depoliticizing um, environmental issues through science makes sense to people. So all these reasons, these are explanations that make sense of why uh, we're depoliticizing environmental issues. Um, but to me, this means these are all situations that we need to really figure out how to change because I think it is um, corrosive to democracy to not actually talk about the political dimensions of our environmental problems. This is a fantastic book. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. Sociologist Abby Kinchy is co-author of Science by the People. You can find out more about Abby at abbykinchy.weebly.com, and you can follow her on Twitter at Abby Kinchy. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure. Take care. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing, this is hell. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history. On March 11th, 1918, 102 years ago this Wednesday, a U.S. Army mess cook at Fort Riley in Kansas became the first confirmed victim of a global influenza pandemic that would go on to kill at least 50 million people over the next three years, including a high percentage of previously healthy young adults. So again, the coronavirus is only going to kill 15 million people, not 50, according to a study released last Thursday by the Australian National University. So there's nothing to worry about. Besides, back then, there were a lot less people, so it was a way bigger deal. Of course, 15 million dead is a concern for the 15 million who are going to die, and that study was released last Thursday, so who knows how that may have changed in the last few days. Anyway, back to rotten history. Medical historians now believe that the influenza virus claimed other victims some two years before it was positively identified, especially in Europe, where it flourished in the filthy trenches of the First World War. War is so dirty. You'd figure that people in the military would have the discipline to clean up after themselves. A bunch of lazy government workers sucking at the teat of Uncle Sam. At first, many wartime governments and public health authorities, including those in the United States, suppressed news about the disease for fear of hurting wartime morale, despite the fact that what's far more demoralizing is when the public is in an alleged democracy inevitably finds out they were not being informed about a serious threat to their and their family's well-being. Yeah, that's not great for morale either. But in Spain, which remained neutral in the war, information about the virus was accurately reported, thus creating the false impression that the pandemic had originated in that country, which is why the disease became known as the so-called Spanish flu. And the last thing you want to do is have a disease named after you. 
asked Lou Gehrig. Didn't work out real well for him either, even though he claimed he was the luckiest man in the world. But if they name the illness that takes your life after you, exactly how lucky are you? In Rotten History, March 12, 2003, 17 years ago this Thursday, after the deaths of some 500 people in less than three months, mostly in southern China and Southeast Asia, the World Health Organization, I'm starting to see a pattern here in this week's Rotten History. Very clever, Ronaldo. The World Health Organization issued a global alert about a new highly contagious and potentially deadly flu-like illness known as Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, or SARS, and like coronavirus, that was exaggerated too, right? Let's find out. Although the strange new illness had been observed in patients since the previous November, Chinese authorities had tried to keep it secret until that became impossible due to its spread outside China. What's up governments being so secret about threats their citizens' health. You'd think that by now the governments would have figured out that being secretive leads the public believing the situation is far worse than it is while simultaneously believing, uh, leaving them uh, unprepared to accurately address the severity of the threat uh, to their well-being. Anyway, the second outbreak of SARS in Toronto dominated headlines in Canada at the same time as news media in the United States were busy covering the U.S. invasion of Iraq, so I'm going to blame Dick Cheney and Halliburton for SARS. The initial Chinese government secrecy would later be blamed for having helped enable the spread of the disease. See, I told you that would happen. Sure, the truth may be demoralizing, but not being honest can be deadly. By the time SARS was declared contained two years later, the virus had killed more than 5,000 people. No cases have been reported since 2005, but experts stress that they will have no cure or vaccine for the disease, still have no cure or vaccine for the disease. So let me get this straight. SARS can be contained, but it cannot be defeated. Mind if you tell me exactly where SARS is contained and how well it is contained and what it's contained in? Because I know SARS only killed 5,000 people. Still, I'd like to know where you have all these SARS containers. In Rotten History, March 13, 1781, 239 years ago this Friday, the eminent British astronomer Sir William Herschel discovered a previously unknown planet orbiting in the distant void beyond Saturn. Oh, please be Uranus, please be Uranus, please be Uranus. In an attempt to suck up to the reigning British monarch, Herschel proposed that the new planet be named Georgium Citus, Latin for the Star of George, meaning King George III, who was already showing the first signs of the mental illness that would later destroy him. Not sure how good naming a star after a person with a mental illness is when it comes to a therapy, but it was the 18th century, so they were likely just throwing anything at the wall. While Herschel named the star for King George, astronomers elsewhere in Europe took offense to Herschel's whiff of British nationalism, and another 70 years would pass before the international scientific community reached a consensus that the new planet would be named after the Greek god of the sky, Uranus, thus unwittingly, or perhaps not so wittingly, providing a setup for many decades of bad schoolyard jokes. First of all, I just want to point out, Ronaldo calls them bad schoolyard jokes. You look them up online, they're called immature jokes, but they're also called old man jokes. So whether you're immature in a schoolyard or an old man, they work for everybody. So come on, Ronaldo, they're not all that bad. I've spent my whole life trying to unlock the mysteries of the universe, but I just keep coming back to Uranus. What would be the first thing Bernie Sanders supporters do if they ruled the solar system? They'd rename Uranus to our anus. Some are even timely, like what time of year is Mercury and Uranus closest together? Flu season. Finally, in Rotten History, March 14, 1926, 94 years ago this Saturday, in Costa Rica, an overcrowded train was carrying hundreds of people on a pilgrimage to a religious shrine in the town of Cartago, which houses a statue of the Virgin Mary that some faithful believe to have the power to heal the sick. Hundreds of people on a train going to be treated for whatever illnesses they have by a statue. Got it. Though the train had stopped in one town to have three carriages added, it was still packed far beyond capacity, and it was groaning with excess weight of extra passengers when it arrived at a bridge over the Varia River Canyon. And I'm betting the next thing that happened was that evil demon gravity and its warlock master physics. 
Unfortunately, the railway on the bridge had been poorly maintained, and as one segment of track came close, the carriage at the end of the train derailed, pulling the rest of the train off the track to hurdle some 200 feet into the river below. A total of 248 people were killed, which makes me very sad and also makes me want to tell another Uranus joke. I could see Uranus from my living room window last night. Next time, please close your curtains. That's Rotten History, and this is Hell. Alex, who is on tomorrow's Tuesdays Live, this is Hell, starting at 10 a.m. I don't want to work on this show anymore after all those jobs. <laughs> Enjoy your new studio. Uh, Nicole Ashoff will be back on the show. Really excited about this to uh, talk about her book, The Smartphone Society, Technology, Power, and Resistance in the New Gilded Age. Uh, and uh, what's, uh, let's just leave it at that. We'll tell people what's happening on Wednesday's show tomorrow. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show, Alex Jerry and Theron Humiston. Thank you, Theron, for all the work that you put in, and Alex, all the work that you put in this weekend to get the new board up and running. Thanks to Abby Kinchy for being our guest, and thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for a spectacular rotten history. Truly revolting radio, this is hell. Talk to you tomorrow. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>